God, our Father, Lord, we thank you for this day and for your loving kindness. Oh, Lord, we praise you for your goodness and your mercy, which follows us all the days of our life. Indeed, Lord, you are a good God. In fact, you are the definition of goodness. God, help us today to ascend to that place to where you are, that we might realize the tremendous blessing that we have in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. O Lord, we honor you today, and we have gathered to worship you and to give you the glory that is due your name. And so we pray that you would be properly exalted in this place. O Lord, that your holy word would be lifted up, that, Lord, we would have hearts ready to receive and obey the things to which you have called us. And, Father, we just want to express our thanksgiving today for the great things you have done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. O oh, Lord, indeed, his blood is precious to us. O oh, God, we thank you that through our Lord Jesus you have cleansed us from our sins. You have redeemed us and bought us back. We do honor him today and glorify him. We seek to worship him and lift him up and sing his praises. And we pray that this would please you, God. Oh, Lord, that not only that, but our lives would please you in every respect as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for your blessed Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts, who continually moves us on to that righteousness and holiness which is yours. The one who is in our hearts convicting us. O Lord, guiding us into all truth. Comforting us in all of our failures and struggles. O Lord, we thank you. We praise you for the great salvation that we have. And Lord, today we want to express our devotion and our love for you, God. We love you. We honor you and we bless your holy name. Father, we pray that our faith would be strengthened, that we might continue to love you more and more, and that God, not only that, but that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. We thank you for all that you are to us and all that you're doing in us. Because of Jesus' precious blood, we pray. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so we've gotten all the way through the end of First Thessalonians chapter 3. And uh, today we're going to move into chapter 4. You might remember, just briefly, in thinking about the book of 1 Thessalonians, that in chapter 1, Paul was really writing and commending these, this young church. And uh, <clears throat> there in chapter 1, he speaks about a remarkable thing that had taken place in the young church, that they had actually proclaimed the word of God in their entire province, that they had not only heard what the apostles taught them, but they actually went out and practiced what the apostles taught them. That in just uh, four short weeks of discipleship, this young church had caught on to the idea that they were supposed to be evangelizing the world around them. And so they went out, and as it says in chapter 1, 
they went out and sounded forth the gospel in every place. And uh, there it says that they uh, preached the gospel in all of Macedonia and also in Achaia. And this was a very large geographical area that encompassed many, many cities and and, uh, rural towns and villages as well. And um, it was a very remarkable thing. And so Paul in chapter 1, really he writes to them and he, he commends them and he thanks God for them. And he also speaks about the fact that, that uh, the remarkable change that had taken place in their life was evidence that God had chosen them. This is what he says in chapter 1, verse 4. And he shows that, uh, indeed, the supernatural thing that's happened among them is indeed supernatural. It's something that only God could do. And so, if you will, the, the whole first three chapters are, are kind of seasoned with this idea that God is in these people and he's working in them by his providence. And that the, the things that are happening among them are happening because God has chosen to set his love upon this people and to use them as his servants, to use them as those who would live lives that glorify him and to manifest his glory through them. And of course, we're familiar, as we've talked about many times, about the idea of you know, how could such a young church have such a testimony in such a short period of time? And, of course, the answer is only by God's power. Amen? And so this, this Thessalonian church really is a, a picture of the supernatural work of salvation that God does in the life of the church. Well, in chapter 2, Paul writes, and he, if you will, kind of defends his own integrity for a few verses, and he also describes the ministry that he performed when he was there. He talks in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, about his uh, discipling efforts and his pastoring efforts and what those looked like, and he really gives a very good description of that, and I would uh, go to say that that is one of the most comprehensive places in all of Scripture where we get a, a view of what Christian discipleship really is. And um, so it's, it's, of course, beyond there that he heads into a short discussion about the Jews and about the nature of Christian persecution toward the end of chapter 2. And then he goes into chapter 3 and discusses Timothy's visit to Thessalonica. Now here, if you will, there is some historical narrative in this book. It's not only didactic. It's not only instructional. But there is some history involved here. Paul is talking about historical facts that took place uh, with Timothy's visit to Thessalonica. And then furthermore, uh, the highlight really of chapter 3 is the fact that when Timothy was there, he had nothing but a good report for what had happened in the church. And when he brought back the news to the apostles, they were overjoyed with what had happened in the church and greatly encouraged by what had happened in the church. And it's there in chapter 3 that Paul is expressing his joy. He's expressing his thanks to God for what has happened. And then he's expressing his longing to see the Thessalonian believers himself and to return again to them to strengthen what is lacking in their faith. And, of course, this was always Paul's zealous desire. He was never content with uh, progress so far, was he? He was always pressing on. 
And so he has this great desire for the Thessalonian church, which uh, really kind of brings us to the last verse of chapter 13, last few verses, if you will. I'm sorry, of chapter 3, verses... uh, Good night. Verses uh, 12 and 13, Paul kind of mentions a, a prayer that he has for them. And he says, And may the Lord cause you, chapter 3, verse 12, to increase and abound in love for one another, for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And so there Paul kind of expresses his desire for God's work in the church. He's praying that their love would abound and furthermore that that God would establish their hearts without blame and holiness. And so if you will, uh, we see here the great desire of God for his church in this brief prayer of the Apostle Paul. And it's kind of with that prayer that he kind of transitions into chapters 4 and 5. So if you will, let's look at chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. And here you'll note this transition. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so we can see this transition then in Paul's terms. The terms finally then clearly show Paul transitioning from the main instruction of the letter to concluding remarks. In the first three chapters, Paul had commended them for their excellent obedience reminded them of his integrity and example in ministry, and exhorted them by way of commendation to continue and excel in their faith and love. In all of this, Paul was careful to acknowledge that their calling and success was a gracious gift from God, whom he thanked more than once, who chose them and powerfully worked within them all the joy and abundant life they were experiencing, even in the midst of severe affliction. Theirs was a remarkable example of God's mercy and power working in them, which caused them to become a fruitful illustration of what true Christianity looks like when it flourishes. But however remarkable an example they had become, neither God nor Paul were satisfied with their progress. And so Paul goes on to exhort them to further progress, stating, Brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Paul was not overbearing or reprovingly correcting them, but rather kindly and gently imploring them as brethren, lovingly stating, we request and exhort you. In this he reminds them of their union with Christ, he says, We exhort you in the Lord Jesus as to refer to the priority of his reminder that as you receive instruction from us 
as to how you ought to walk and please God, something they were in fact doing, he says, just as you actually do walk, but even further, that you excel still the more. And so if, if you think just for a minute about the fact that who's the real author of this letter? God. Exactly right. So even though it is the Apostle Paul that's penning the letter, right? It is, in fact, God by his Holy Spirit who's inspiring the very words. Amen? For these are not the words of men, but the word of God. Amen? As it says in chapter 2, verse 13. Well, if you think about that for just a moment, what that means is the thoughts, the ideas, the concerns, the expressions that are here in the words are the thoughts, concerns, ideas, and expressions of God. Amen? And so this is what God says. He says, we request and exhort you, just like we taught you how to live like a Christian, right? We want you to excel still more. We want you to grow. We want you to continue to press on. We want you to excel in the faith. And uh, so here we learn the great priority of Christian life, the doctrine of sanctification, that no matter how far we may have come in the faith, we must press on to the holiness and perfection which is in the Lord Jesus. And so the idea then is, is that even though we may be doing well, we may even be a commended church, commended by the Apostle Paul. Nevertheless, he says, even as we instructed you, we want you to excel all the more. Amen? Because no matter how far we've come, we are not yet perfect as the Lord Jesus. Amen? And all Christians everywhere have miles and miles to grow, do we not? And so, if you will, this is kind of the basic idea of sanctification. That is that it's a process. It's not just something that happens once for all. And I was talking with you about that last week in the main service and and talking about the fact that even though Christ has if you will, cleansed us of our sins. That is, happens in ju- justification. We get declared righteous by God on the basis of what Christ has accomplished. And that that justification is once and for all forever. So that no matter uh, what state you may die in as a Christian, okay, if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, you have been washed and cleansed from all of your sins the due penalty of your sins being born in the body of Christ on the cross. Okay? But, even though we've been saved and we've been born again, we're still alive here in this body of sin. We're in this mortal body that still has the ability to sin. And so God has a purpose and a plan that in this time between now and the actual physical resurrection of our bodies when we will become immortal, He is working this process of sanctification in our life, whereby we are continually being conformed and molded into the image of Christ and growing in the likeness of Christ and in the holiness of God. Amen? Amen. And so, if you will, sanctification is a process. Practical sanctification is a process. It's something that is taking place from the day you get saved until the day you get glorified. And so, if you will, this is one of the great purposes in Christian life. It is, in fact, that we take on 
the holiness of God. That we take on the character and the nature of Christ. That we become more like him. This is the reason Romans 8.29 says that God predestined us. He predestined us for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. And so this is God's ultimate purpose, that he's working the character and nature of Christ in us. Why? Because that is the thing that is pleasing to God. That is his own nature. Right? In the words of, I don't know if it's John Piper or Jonathan Edwards or both, but that God is uppermost in his own affections. You understand the concept? The thing that God considers the highest and most glorious thing is himself. And that for God, he is the only being in all of creation, right? Of course, he's outside of creation, but he's the only being that exists for which that is a good and a right thing. For every other creature, that's what we call narcissism, self-love, okay? And self-love is sinful. You know why? Because it improperly exalts itself above God. Because the proper exaltation for all of creation is the creator who created it. Are you with me? He's the source. (coughs) He's the source of everything that exists. And because of that, he he is due glory from his creatures. He gives us our life and our breath and everything we have. Therefore, the chief and primary purpose of our life is to what? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever in so doing. Amen? Because glorifying God is exceedingly joyful. Amen? Well, so, uh, this idea then of sanctification is something that God desires for the church. This is what Paul was praying at the end of chapter 3. That your hearts may be established blameless in holiness and that your love would abound more and more. And so uh, here, as he transitions, he's going to begin to describe what that's like. What does that abounding love and blameless holiness look like practically in our lives, specifically practically in the life of these Thessalonians? Because it has some very specific applications for them. And so he's going to describe that. So if you will, he kind of transitions into this thought, a thought of, let me instruct you what this sanctification looks like. And so I want to just kind of help you a little bit more. Sanctification is more than just a process, but it's a process that has a goal. It's a process that has an objective. It's a process that has a completion, okay? That goal, that objective, that completion of sanctification is this, holiness, Okay, holiness, the term holiness, the term holiness primarily means to be set apart. It has secondary meanings like sinlessness because God has set us apart to be what? Sinless. Holy, without sin, or what? Pure, right? Or it can carry the idea of purification. 
This is the work that God is doing in us practically now. He's purifying us. He's purifying us how? Well, he's purifying our thoughts, our words, our actions. Amen? And so every Christian ought to be able to look at their life and see God performing this work. They ought to see a decreasing frequency of sin, and they ought to see an increasing frequency of righteousness and holiness. Amen? Why is that? Because the reality is for every single Christian that God is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his own good purpose. The, the, the deal with, with uh, sanctification is, the deal with sanctification is, is that we cooperate. People don't like it when I use these terms, but I'm going to use them anyway. We cooperate with God in this process. This is something that you, by degree, can surrender to uh, more or less. Are you with me? Even a church, if you will, can be a more or less pure church in the way that it practices its form of worship. It could be more and more like God intends for the church or less and less like God intends for the church. And in that, the church as a corporate body is cooperating with God, either doing more and more what the Scripture says or less and less what the Scripture says. How many of you have the testimony that you've been in a more or less pure church throughout your Christian life? Right? <laughs> and if you've been in a less pure church, you probably came out with complaints. <laughs> right? And if you've been in a more pure church, you probably got some more complaints. Because <laughs> there ain't no such thing as a perfect church. Right? Right. If you find one, don't join it. You'll ruin it. Right? So... <laughs> So, so it is with sanctification. Your life is either more pure or less pure. Let me get even more specific. Your cooperation with God in making you holy is either more cooperative or less cooperative based on how your will intends to do what God wants you to do. You understand? It's not to say God is not at work in you, both to will and to do, according to his good purpose. But the idea is that you are supposed to be working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the commandment in the same verse just before it, right? Philippians 2, 12, 13. And so the idea is, is that what? That you work it out, even though God is working it in you. Are you with me? And so... <clears throat> If you will, even though sanctification is primarily God's work, it has this secondary aspect that it happens in a greater degree as you cooperate in greater degree with God. Amen? Are you with me? Is that clear? Okay, it's kind of a hard thing to articulate because it it may even bring up a whole lot of of other questions. Hopefully, we'll be addressing those over the next few uh uh, hours here. So, um, <clears throat> Paul then is transitioning into this idea. He's reminding them that he gave them instruction about how to walk. And of course, we know that the word walk in Pauline New Testament means what? Live. The way you live. The way you walk is the way you live. The way you live is the way you walk. Okay, so he's talking about the way you live your life when he says walk. And he says, we, we gave you instruction as to how you ought to walk. You understand? Versus how you ought not to walk. 
You understand? There, this implies that Paul had moral imperatives. That there was an ought to way and there was a not ought to way. Amen? Now understand, that's not very much like our postmodern culture, is it? Right? But we're not of this postmodern culture. We're the children of God. Amen? And so there is a way that we ought to walk. Amen? And Paul's going to lay that out for these Thessalonians. As a matter of fact, he's going to put before them a very, very difficult command in these following verses. Something that for them is going to really, really cause them to be set apart from the world and the culture in which they live. And I'm going to show you how that works. But nevertheless, this idea that we ought to walk and please God and excel all the more, if you will, that's a description of sanctification right there, how you ought to walk and please God and excel all the more, right? Because it's a process of growing in holiness is no uh, strange idea to Christian teaching. And so here, learn the great priority of Christian life, the doctrine of sanctification, that no matter how far we may have come in the faith, we must press on to the holiness and perfection which is in the Lord Jesus. This was a constant theme in the instruction and prayers of the apostle. For example, in Philippians 12, uh, 3, verses 12 through 15, he writes and he says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? You see very clearly what Paul is saying? He's saying, here I am, the Apostle Paul. Here I am, the guy that wrote half the New Testament. And guess what? I haven't arrived. Right? And so here's what he says. Here's what I do, he says. I don't let the guilt and shame of my past sins and failures hold me back. Instead, I believe that Christ cleansed me and washed me from all of my sins. Right? Sorry. I'm maybe adding a bit to what Paul is saying. But I'm looking into Pauline theology, right? And trying to explain to you what's in his heart. He's saying, look, I forget what lies behind. Those things aren't going to pin me down. I may have come so far, but you know what? That's of no consequence. What matters is Jesus is up here. He's my goal. He's my prize. He's my pursuit. He's the one that I'm seeking to lay hold of. Amen? And so he says, I forget what lies behind and I press on. This is why I keep telling you, today is a new day. You know, you might say, well, <laughs> you know, I, I've made such a wreck of things. My life is so tragic. My, all the, the mistakes and failures I've made are so terrible. Well, guess what? Join the crowd. Amen? Amen. I mean, trust me, I, I, I've got an I've got a, a atrocious history of activity in my life that I could spend plenty of time dwelling on the guilt and the shame of that. Are you with me? But listen, I was cleansed. I was washed. Christ took away my guilt. 
Remember what expiation is? We spent many weeks talking about it. Remember what propitiation is, right? It's the satisfaction of God's wrath toward my sins. Not only did Christ take my guilt away, because he paid the penalty in full, but listen, he satisfied God's anger toward my sin completely. There's no longer any barrier between me and God for sins I've committed. It has been completely removed. Amen? Amen. You understand? That's the great thing that Christ has done. And then on top of that, he puts icing on the cake. You know what that is? That's the doctrine of imputation. You know what that means? That means that Christ's perfect life and death and the righteousness that he earned in his flesh, in his body, gets imputed to my account. I get a check written to my account, signed by Christ in his blood that says this, paid in full, no more debt, completely righteous on my account. You understand? This is why we don't need to be pinned down or insecure about the guilt and shame of our past sins. You can believe it, family. You can believe it. Christ has washed you. He has cleansed you. Okay? So that's why I'm telling you. Today is a new day. Look, if you yelled at your family yesterday and you were mean to your wife and you were angry with your husband and you said things you weren't supposed to say or God forbid you did something far worse than that, Okay, look, today is a new day. Here's what you do. You get on your knees. You say, God, I'm sorry. I'm a wretch. I'm a train wreck sometimes inside my heart. I just keep sinning. But God, I need your help. So today I'm repenting of my sin. I recognize that thing I did. It was ugly. It was awful. It was wicked. I should not have done it. Please forgive me. I don't want to offend you, Lord. In fact, I love you and I want to please you. So help me today to put off my sin and to walk in your righteousness and in your holiness and and to do the right thing. Help me to think right thoughts. God, help me to say right words. Help me to say and do right things. Amen. Are you with me? Today's a new day. Let me tell you, every moment is new for a Christian. Why? Because every past moment, even if it is a sinful moment, is washed clean by the blood of Christ. Every single moment in your life is a new moment if you're in Christ. It's true. I tell you, it's true. Your sins are washed away completely. That is the emphatic emphatic expression of the gospel in the New Testament. Are you with me? And it's not because of what you have done. It's because of what Christ has done. Amen? Carol, were you going to comment? Um, Just that it's it's encouraging to me and know too that all the sins I'm going to commit in the future are already been. Amen. Mm Mm-hmm. She's, she's saying all the sins I'm going to commit in the future are forgiven. I want to tell you that that is emphatically the expression of the gospel in the New Testament. Let me, let me put it a different way. Let me put it in a negative light. If you face God and have one sin to your charge, when you get there, guess what? Toast. You shall not live. You shall die. 
The righteous judgment of God for one single sin is eternal separation from His glory and power and presence. You understand? Your sins have to be completely forgiven or God can't even dwell in you by His Holy Spirit. The fact that God's Spirit lives in you is sure evidence that your sins are completely forgiven and washed away. You might say, well, that gives me license to sin. Here's what I would say about that. If that's what you think, you're probably not born again. (laughs) Because people that are born again don't want to sin. They're not looking for ways to justify and rationalize their sin. They're looking for ways to put their sin off and please God. And if you don't see that pattern in your life, you need to get saved. Are you with me? Which means you simply come to Christ by faith, trusting Him and Him alone for your righteousness and repenting of all known sins in your life and then going on with your life and walking in that repentance to the best of your God-given ability. Amen? I think after 1,000 ways of trying to articulate what salvation is, you know, sooner or later, you know, we might like hit the nail on the head. (laughs) But I think this is a great challenge for anybody who's teaching the Bible or preaching the gospel. It's finding different ways to articulate the gospel so that it comes out clear. Because it's a really difficult concept for earthlings. It's such a glorious otherworldly thing that God has done. And we're so steeped in the darkness and sin of this world. It's, it's too good to believe, isn't it? The, the, the glory of God in salvation is too good to believe. This is why we constantly doubt it. Right? But that doesn't change God's eternal decree. <laughs> Amen? And no matter how much doubt you have, Right? If you trust Christ for your righteousness, let me tell you what you get. Christ's righteousness. Which, by the way, is a perfect righteousness in the sight of God. Amen? And that's what you get when you believe. So what should you do in light of that? Well, let me tell you. You ought to walk and please God and excel still more. Are you with me? It's not a license to sin. It's an encouragement to do the right thing. Which is what every true Christian wants to do. And we recognize, look, we got big problems. We, we, have, we have massive sins that we don't just overcome in, in one day, in one week, in one year, in one decade. Okay? We have massive sin problems. And the sanctification process is God cleansing us and washing us from that sin and turning our old practice of wickedness into a new practice of true righteousness and holiness. Are you with me? And so we're cooperating with God in this process. And how are we doing that? Well, it's real simple. We're putting off the old man of sin and we're putting on the new man of righteousness. We're doing that in our thoughts. We're doing it in our words and we're doing it in our deeds. So here's the deal. Stop sinning. And do what's right. What do we call that? Repentance. Right? Stop using your mouth as an instrument of sin. And start using it as an instrument of grace and love and truth. 
Amen? Stop using your mind as an instrument of sin and start using it as an instrument that glorifies God. Are you with me? You got to start renewing your mind. That's why we put our nose in the Bible so we can think like God thinks and we can see God there. We can experience God in his word and it powerfully transforms our thinking, right? So that we won't be what? Conformed to this world any longer but will be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might know what God's good, perfect, and acceptable will is. The transformation of the mind uh, by God's word helps us to know and understand what pleases God so that we can do what? Walk and please God and excel still more. Amen? Okay. That's the doctrine of sanctification. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, I forget what lies behind and I press on. Toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You understand? Paul wants to be like Christ. And until Paul is like Christ, he will not be satisfied. Further, and more importantly, God wants you to be like Christ. And until you are like Christ, God will zealously be working in you both to will and to do according to his own good pleasure so that you will become like Christ. This is true about every Christian in the world, without exception. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit who lives inside you. Are you with me? God is making us holy. God is making us holy in practice, even as we are in position because of what Christ has done. Amen? Paul writes of this again and again. 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12. He's telling Timothy, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You understand what he's telling him to do? Look, look at these words. Tell me, that Paul is not telling Timothy to cooperate with God when he says things like, pursue, fight, take hold of. You see that? Listen, Christian, pursue, fight, take hold of. Are you with me? That's the idea in sanctification. You've got to exercise your own will and fortitude in the Christian life. And guess what? If you're lazy about it, you know what will happen? To that degree, you will not be conformed into the likeness of Christ. And to that degree, you will not taste of His glory. You've got one short life to live. How high do you want to ascend? Because to that height that you ascend, let me tell you, the day you're glorified, you will experience that height of glory forever and ever and ever, world without end. And if that is a very low height, right, however high it may be, that will be the extent of the glory that you uh, experience in your own person throughout eternity. That's what heavenly reward is. That's why Jesus said, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode, where thieves do not break in and steal. What's he talking about? He's talking about do things that glorify God in your life. Why? Because that's like laying up treasure in heaven. Right? Because when we all get there, guess what? 
The righteous are going to shine like the glory of the sun, like the stars forever and ever. Well, let me ask you, how bright are you going to shine? How much of the glory of God are you going to take on through your cooperation with God in sanctification? You with me? You understanding more and more what that's like, how that works? What, what is heavenly reward? I would ask you to think that through. And how do we achieve it? Right? Well, Jesus gives us many, many parables describing that. It all has to do with how well you serve God and how pure and genuine your thoughts and your motives and your character is like as you do it. Amen? Philippians 1, 9 through 11, he's praying for the church. Look, look what he says. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be what? Sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see how Paul's just praying for the church just to abound and excel and overflow with all the goodness of God and with all the blessings of God. That's what he's praying diligently for the church, for you and for me. He does the same thing, Colossians 1, 9 through 12. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You want to know what God's desire is for your Christian life? There it is. There it is. So what should you do? You should pursue. You should fight. You should lay hold of. Are you with me? Paul eagerly desires for these Thessalonians to excel still more and not to be content with their own current state of holiness. He reminded them of how he had taught them. You received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. In his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, MacArthur provides a helpful list of instructions on how you ought to walk and please God. He writes, So the saints already knew the fundamentals of Christian living. They knew what they needed to do to please God, literally to strive to please God, and glorify Him in everything they needed to. And so if you will, MacArthur kind of lists out what, you know, here's Paul talking about how we instructed you, how you ought to walk and please God. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Is that just some Christianese or does it actually have feet, right? Well, if you will, he kind of listed out some things that a Christian ought to do, okay? Here they are. To confess their sins regularly. And of course, with each one of these, I gave you a whole list of scriptures that he provided there in his commentary. They ought to confess their sins regularly. They ought to pray continually and trust Him. They ought to pursue humility. They ought to be content with God's will as revealed in His Word. 
They ought to be willing to suffer for his name. You ought to evangelize the lost. I ought to celebrate the Lord's table. We ought to care for one another. We ought to honor God in our marriages and families. And we ought to be diligent and fruitful in all avenues of service. Now, isn't that helpful? I think it is. It kind of defines the things that we actually ought to do. Right? Let me tell you. You need something to have with a Bible study with your family? Here it is. Break out page number 38 and go through this list on the top and read all the scriptures and talk about what God has said. Okay? Then, if you need a Bible study for next week, break out page 38 and do the things down below that are written there. Okay? There's two good Bible studies right there. Need another one? Holler at me. I'll give you another one. Okay? Emphasis on you ought to be having Bible study with your family regularly. If you're not in the Word with your family, guess what? They're going to grow up and not be in the Word. Understand? It's an easy equation. Now, obviously this is not an exhaustive list, but it surely is a good snapshot of general Christian living. Here, ask yourself, have I attained to the practice and habit of all these things in order to please God in my life? Question. Ask yourself. Have I attained to the practice and habit of all these things in order to please God in my life? Think about it. Here's a practical list of what they are. Is that how you live? That's how Paul would instruct you to walk and please God. To live like that by doing those things. And being the people that do those things. With the right motivations. Right? And uh, <clears throat> I, I wrote, in fact, you ought to walk and please God in this way. So here's what I'm saying. You're a Christian here today. This is the way you ought to live. And there's all the scriptures right there that give us the instruction that that's what we ought to do. How ought you to walk and please God? Well, just like this. These then are the things in which they and we are to excel still more as we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand? Well, here's the deal. You might be able to say, yep, I do all those things. That's good. You should be doing those things. But guess what? Now you need to excel still more. Well, you say, hey, man, I'm excelling, man. No, you ain't. (laughs) Not to the level or degree that you should. Right? There are many sacrifices that you could make in your life to please God. And I don't want to tie that on your back like a heavy load, like some kind of burden. Okay? If you want to make sacrifices of God, make sacrifices that you're pleased to make, that you can do joyfully and cheerfully. Nevertheless, you ought to make sacrifices to follow Christ. In fact, You ought to lose your life. You ought to take up your cross and deny yourself daily and lose your life for his sake. Amen? 
that may mean the sacrifice of many goals and ambitions and dreams that you may have. Worldly endeavors, worldly goals, worldly dreams. Not many missionaries in poor countries in Africa or Asia are there because they want to be in the flesh. Are you with me? They're there because they want to, because they love God. And they're making a sacrifice of what? Whatever was counted to them as worldly gain. (laughs) Right? Some of them even losing their life to be there regularly. Amen? And so, excel still the more. There's always more ground to take, Caleb. There's more Gergeshites and Hittites in the land than Wrigley's has gum. You know what we mean by that? It means there's still a bunch of sins running around in your heart, rampant, that need to be overcome. Agag needs to be hacked to pieces. Are you with me? A few pictures from the Old Testament. So, let us be careful, therefore, not to lose sight of these things and to pursue this life that pleases God and continue to excel still more. May I suggest a few more for the list that I believe will be the catalyst to your further spiritual growth in the above exhortation. So I wanted to add some others because I felt like that list was to some degree lacking some of the most basic things of Christian life, which I'd like to now express to you. So that would be to love God and delight in him sincerely from your heart. In my mind, when Jesus says that this is the great and foremost commandment, and if you consider that God's word, if in, in a sense, is a, is a commandment, it's a commandment. The gospel is a commandment. Okay, The scriptures are a commandment that issues forth from the mouth of God to creatures who he gave ears to hear. Right? When Jesus says that this is the great and foremost commandment, to me, this is what that means. This is the main thing, period. It's the main thing. Now, do this as a Christian, okay? And don't do this. In all the years that you're going to church and you're reading your Bible and you're growing and becoming a Christian, okay? Don't look through the forest and miss the trees. Are you, are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? What I mean by that is, keep the main thing the main thing. Okay? So what is the main thing? Well, Jesus says, the great and foremost commandment in all the scripture is what? To love God with all of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. Are you with me? That is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, here is the main thing about being a Christian. Love God and love your neighbor. Because you know what? In those two commandments, sums up the whole Bible. That's what Jesus says in verse 40 of the same, Matthew 22, verse 40. He says, this is all the law and the prophets. In other words, this is the meaning of the whole Bible. Love God and love your neighbor. Let me tell you, if you love God... You're going to be pursuing holiness. Mm -hmm. 
Why? Because you love God. The last thing in the world you want to do is offend God, which is what sin is, right? So what are you going to do? We're going to, you're going to want to be like him. Why? Because you love him. Why do you love him? Because he's gracious and he's powerful and he's kind and he's good and he's merciful and he's forgiving. And you love all those good attributes about God. And if you really love him and value those, guess what? You want to have all those and be just like those. Why? Because you love it. That's what worshiping a God is all about. You're consumed with passion for the God you worship. You're consumed with passion for the thing that you love and adore. What is it? Well, if it's God, then you love God's goodness and you love his power and you love his wisdom and his justice and his mercy and his grace and all the wonderful attributes that make up his being. And so what do you do? Well, you, 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 you sit and you ponder and you meditate and you worship and you think, God, you're so good. And you just long for him and you long to be like him. That's what worship is all about. The word worship means to ascribe worth, to ascribe value. That's why when you read through the Bible in the Old Testament, they're always singing praise to God for this goodness and that attribute. And, you know, the Lord delivered us and he redeemed us. And the Lord is mighty in power and awesome in, in glory, right? He's gracious and forgiving and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and goodness and truth and mercy. And, and, and they're just singing God's praises. Why? Because of all of his goodness. <clears throat> so it, this is the main thing. This is what I'm telling you. It's not about all the silliness that goes on in a church over which you got offended, so you left. Because <laughs> that silliness exists wherever people are. The main thing is to love God and worship Him and please Him with your life. You understand? That's the main thing. And here's the problem. That's what the preacher ought to be telling you. The preacher ought to be telling you that's the main thing. He ought to be helping you to look through the forest and see the trees. Are you with me? We ought to know what the main thing is so that we can keep the main thing the main thing. Which means we didn't just know it 20 years ago and now we forgot. Now we lost our first love. But it's that we keep the main thing the main thing. You understand? So here's how you ought to sum up your, your Christianity. Here's how you ought to sum up your religion. Love God, love my neighbor. And work real hard to do those things. Why? Because that is the highest thing that as a creature you can possibly do. That is to love God. That is assuredly the purpose for which you were created. To love God. You with me? Or to regularly worship and praise God both corporately and privately. Okay? Regularly. Regularly worship and praise God. Both corporately and privately. Why? Because that's what God says we ought to do. Amen? Those aren't my imperatives. Those are God's imperatives. There's the scriptures. Go ahead and read them. How about this? To treasure, delight in, and regularly feed on God's word. Okay, if you do that, all those things at the top of the list, you're going to be continually reminded about that because God's word is filled with instruction to do those things. Are you with me? It's filled with instruction to walk and please him in every respect. 
Amen? Or to commune with God regularly in prayer and meditation on his word. Now, up above it does say that, to pray continually and trust him. But I want to emphasize, pray, listen, pray and meditate on his word. Here's how I like to pray, with my Bible open, undistracted. Because my chief goal in prayer is to align my will with God's will. Okay? Another goal I have in prayer is to commune with God there. To hear from him, to let him speak to me his glorious word that feeds my soul. Right? And to enjoy that washing and that cleansing that he's doing in me through the power of his word. Are you with me? So what I'm talking about is praying in the word and letting the word of God envelop your prayers. Those prayers that we had there on page 37 on Colossians 1, 9 through 12, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, read there how God wants us to pray. You'll see the things we ought to pray for. Okay? And the word energizes and instructs our prayer. Are you with me? So I'm, I'm trying to tie communing with God in prayer with meditation on his word. I think it's very important for every Christian. I think it's daily activity we ought to be doing. Daily. And lastly, to participate regularly in fellowship with godly Christians for the purpose of growth and accountability. You with me? Regularly getting with other Christians, opening up the Bible and saying, look what God has said. How you doing? You with me? And so, so for them to say back to you, how you's doing too. Right? So you can hold one another accountable. I'm saying you need to do this regularly. Family, when I was a very young Christian, I had a man in the church grab me. And he got a hold of me. And he discipled me. And he taught, he taught me what to do from the beginning. And I want to tell you how that put me on a foundation. Because he taught me to read my Bible every day. And he taught me that God was there in the Bible. That I would experience God in the Bible. That the word was powerful. And it would come in and change my life. And it would fill my life with blessing. He taught me that. And you know what? He didn't lie. He was truthful about that because I did it. I did what he said. And you know what? My life was powerfully transformed. Still to this day, 19 years later, I'm flying on the heights, man. I'm so overcome by God's power. It's true. It's real. Okay, but he taught me how to do that from a young Christian. And this is what he said. He said, you got to get with other Christian men every single week of your life. And you got to look them in the eye and you got to tell them how you're doing. And they have to know you well enough to know when you're not doing good so they can get you back on the path. And ever since I was a young Christian, I have every single week of my life met with other Christian men for the purpose of accountability. And I want to tell you it has been a great catalyst to keep me on the straight and narrow. We can't do this on our own. We're called to be a family. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is staying on the right path. We need each other's help. Are you with me? And everything you said applies to women too, says Carol. Okay? 
You need encouragement. You need help. You need somebody to bear your heart with. You need somebody to carry the burden with. You need somebody who's, who loves you, who's praying for you, who's encouraging you. Somebody who's giving you godly counsel, not telling you to make some wicked choice. Are you with me? Oh, how so many Christians make bad decisions because they're torn away by their emotions and they're torn away by their temptations. They need a good Christian friend to sit them down and shake them and say, wait a minute, time out, man. You can't do that. Are you with me? Sorry, I'm getting... I'm not sorry. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overcome that sooner or later. <clears throat> but I'm telling you, sometimes we need to be shook when we're about to make a bad choice. Are you with me? And that's one of the reasons why we have a brotherhood and a sisterhood. Right? So don't despise it when your sister comes to you and shakes you. Don't despise it. Love it. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Rebuke a fool and he will hate you. You understand? A wise man loves a reproof more than a thousand lashes a fool. You understand? You reprove a wise man, he loves it. Because he's wiser still. And he's humble enough to know he needs help. Amen? You with me? Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we do indeed want to be holy. Lord, we, we want to please you in every respect. And we, we do see in your word how clearly you have taught us. And so we ask for strength, God, that you would help us to pursue and to fight and to take hold of that you would help us to grow in our faith and to be encouraged with much hope, God, of all of the glorious, wonderful things that you have for us. Just, just the fact that you're living in our hearts and filling us with your joy. God, I pray for those who are not experiencing your joy, that, Father, you would help them to, 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 to uh, conform their life to your instruction. Because you tell us and you promise us, God, that joy is ours. It's a fruit of your spirit living in us. I pray for those who are discouraged and downtrodden. God, help them to look their eyes toward Jesus. God, help them to, to be encouraged by what you have said to us. Father, help those who are weak. Strengthen all of us, God, in this dark day to live a life that's blameless and holiness before you. Father, that we might walk and please you in every respect. Strengthen us in our faith. O oh Lord, our most holy faith, so that we might please you. That you might uh, be pleased with the thoughts and the meditations of our heart, O oh God. That they might be acceptable to you. We honor you and we praise you because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen. Amen.